If I was a preacher, I'd ask in Jesus' name for God to love all children and no one be ashamed. I'm asking you good preachers to lead your church with grace. For if God had made you different, you could be in my place. In my God's Bible, you can read it all. One who loves another, they have fulfilled the law. And when the hate is spoken, this I know is true. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Oh, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we continue our LGBTQ History Month programming through an interview with Kentucky author and activist Silas House. House is the nationally best-selling author of six novels, a book of creative nonfiction, and three plays. He was born and raised in Lily, Kentucky, and also spent much of his childhood in Leslie County. He now makes his home in Berea, Kentucky, where he works as the National Endowment for the Humanities Chair in Appalachian Studies at Berea College. He also serves as a member of the fiction faculty at Spalding University's MFA program in creative writing. I was honored Silas found time in his busy schedule to join me by phone to talk about his new novel, Southernmost. Silas reads an excerpt and talks about the central themes of fatherhood, religion, and queerness that are threaded through this book. We gush about Dorothy Allison, and House talks about many other writers and musicians who have influenced his work. And Silas talks about the lack of nuance in national impressions about the rural mountain south. This interview is a real treat. Stay tuned. Yeah, just to start, so your your new book, Southernmost, is out this month. It just came out a couple days ago, I believe. Is that right? It came out June 5th. June yeah. 5th, Okay. And so it's gotten really high praise already um, from a lot of different folks who've read it and reviewed it, including Dorothy Allison, who's one of my favorite writers, um, who wrote just a really beautiful, beautiful review of it. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about this book um, without giving away important details for readers who are excited to read it. But um, what's kind of the information that folks who might want to go get this book should know in advance and what are you most excited about in terms of its release well it's uh set during the summers of 2015 2016 it's very contemporary and it's um mostly from the point of view of an evangelical preacher named asher sharp his brother comes out to him and asher rejects him in a really terrible way They've always been very close. Uh, They have a a great love between them. Have sort of been alone in the world together. But when Asher rejects him, Luke disappears. And he's gone for about 10 years. And over that 10 years, Asher starts to lead a more self-examined life where he's really thinking about, you know, does he really believe he should have rejected his brother, or is that something that the church has just taught him? You know, is it his heart, or is it just some man-made rule from the pulpit that's made him that way? And so he begins to really want to find his brother and apologize to him and, and you know, be accepting and go through the world as an accepting person. Well, about the time that he's gotten to that point, um, A devastating flood hits the same exact weekend that marriage equality is passed by the Supreme Court. And two things happened that really set a chain of events into motion. First of all, people in his church start to blame 
um, marriage equality and gay people in general for this devastating flood that hit their community. The other thing is that a gay couple who sort of live quietly in their community, they become homeless because of the flood, and they come to Asher's house seeking shelter, and his wife turns them away because they're gay. And so that's Asher's breaking point, where he's like, all right, I've been studying on this for 10 years. It's time for me to actually do something of action. It's time for me to stand up for my brother and and stop, you know, being mealy mouth about this. And so he goes into his church and he just says, you know, we have to start accepting people. We, we have to start being good to people. And I'm going to accept this couple into our church. And if y'all don't like it, that's too bad. And so, of course, they run him off. And his wife, uh, he, he gets a divorce from his wife. And he loses custody of his little boy because the community so in opposition to him. And so he kidnaps his little boy, Justin, and they run off to Key West, hoping that, that they can find Luke there. And so that's sort of the, the setup for the novel. And to me, I'm just, um, I've always wanted to write a novel that explores these issues. As a gay person, these issues are important to me. But at the same time, I didn't want to write another coming out book I just didn't feel like I had, you know, I didn't have anything really fresh and new to add about that. But I did have something new to add from this point of view of this evangelical character who is evolving and changing. And I think a whole lot of people are evolving on this issue. And I think that a lot of rural people are a lot more complex on this issue than people give them credit for. And so one thing I always want to do as a writer is complexify rural people. I'm really proud to have been raised in the country to identify as rural and Appalachian. You know, we really wore the badge of being hillbilly, being country, very proudly. And I never want to romanticize people from rural places. And I certainly don't want to vilify them. I want to show them as complex people. And so a book like this really allows me to do that because I can show the full spectrum of responses to an issue like this from country people's point of view. Great. It sounds so good. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I've been been excited about this since the I, I first saw you read a little section at Heinemann some years Thank ago. You. Yeah. Well, you know, one reason I was so tickled to get Dorothy Allison's approval is because I felt I feel like Dorothy Allison is one of the first people in my reading life that put my people on the page, you know, because yeah. I'm from very, very working class people. I mean, rough, wonderful people who never really have much of a voice in literature in a dignified way until Dorothy Allison did that. And of course, she was not only putting rural people on the page, but she was also putting rural queer people on the page long before that was acceptable <laughs> conversation, yeah. you know, and so she's such a, a pioneer and such an inspiration. It just, uh, I just can't believe that she actually, I, I can't believe she read my book, much less said nice things about it. I just saw her quote um, about how much she loves this book and, and it just, because of just what you said, the, the fact that she's kind of the pioneer, for lack of a better word at the moment, of this kind of topic area in this setting in terms of the rural south and that she's um mm -hmm. that she clearly connects with this book and and relates to it is just such a compliment <laughs> yeah she's a you know she's just such a hero to me not only as a literary stylist but just as a, a person who is speaking her truth and is you know really challenged notions of what it means to be rural and working class and gay and the other and you know all those layers yeah yeah absolutely i wonder if if you'd feel up for reading an excerpt now yeah i have a little excerpt here it's about eight minutes long um and this takes place in key west and um i, I think all you need to know here is that justin is the little boy he's about nine years old he's a weird sensitive little boy as you'll see in this passage 
And most of the scene, he's with um, a woman named Belle, who they sort they meet once they're in Florida, and they're sort of hiding out, and they live in this uh, complex that she has, and she has a big impact on them. The morning before the day when everything starts to unravel, the dog finds a very long and very old iguana that has died under the porch. The dog, Shady, crawls halfway to it and is frozen in his barking, unable to tear himself away from his discovery. Justin maneuvers under the porch and finds the lizard lying a few feet from Shady, who is crouched down on his belly with his paws parked in front of him a low growl in the back of his throat between deep barks. Justin hooks one of the iguana's claws with a stick and drags it out. Belle comes out to see what's the matter with Shady, and when she sees the iguana, its skin green like limes, except for the black blocks running down its tail, eyes open and milky white, she says, Oh, no, sadder than Justin has ever heard her be before. I've been knowing that old man for a long time. Justin asked if she had named him. No, I don't believe in naming wild things, she says, leaning down. Me and this old man came to an understanding. Every once in a while, I left him a treat, collards or mangoes, and so he returned the favor by not eating my garden vegetables. For real, Justin asked. Belle nods. When you respect a wild thing, they return the favor, mostly. The iguana is almost the length of Justin's arm, tail and all, but she says he's actually kind of small for a full-grown one. I've been here 20 years, and he's been here at least 15 of them, Bill says. Poor old feller. Justin can't stop looking at its little claws, which are all curled up, very pitiful. Bill steps down from the porch and puts her hand on Justin's shoulder while they look down at the iguana. Justin misses his granny then, because allowing this silence to bloom is something she would have done. Shady edges nervously forward and takes a step back with his nose near to the ground, wanting to get close enough to get a good whiff of the death smell, but too afraid to venture all the way. Get back, Belle hollers, very sharp, afraid that Shady might try to snatch up the iguana, Justin reckons. Shady clicks his ears flat and sits, yawns to feign nonchalance and perches his head atop his paws. Should we bury him? Justin asks. Belle nods and tells Justin to go to Ivona for a shovel. When he comes back, Belle has fetched a shoebox, and now she has already laid the iguana inside and attached the lid. They choose a spot at the side of Belle's house. Justin digs a while, but he isn't much good at it. So Bell shows him how to stand on the shovel to get the blade to go deeper, how to tug up on it to throw the dirt aside. Hard to use the shovel properly when you're wearing flip-flops, she says, but she seems to be doing just fine despite her sandals. She's good at digging, Justin says. I've worked these old arms plenty enough, she says. I don't believe there's a job I haven't done to make my way in this world. Shady watches from a good distance away now setting at full attention, his ears up like he knows something is dead and being buried. When they have a good-sized hole, they put the shoebox in and rake the dirt back over, the quads making little tap-tap-tap clup-clups on the lid until there's a dark mound. They all pats the dirt down with the toe of her shoe, and then they stand there again, not knowing what to do next. Should we say a prayer or something? Justin says. You can, I reckon, Bell says. In Justin's mind, he knows what he wants to say. Everything, thank you for giving us this good old iguana. He was beautiful. Amen. He can't say that out loud, not even in front of Bell. When Bell sees that Justin isn't able to speak, she puts her hand on his shoulder again. He can feel her sadness working its way from her fingers into his skin, an old sorrow that the iguana has conjured back up for her. And then she says, everything that is, is holy. Amen, Justin says. Justin and Belle sit on the porch afterward. Shady jumps up on the wicker love seat and sits with him. Belle rocks in her bright yellow rocker like a queen 
mucks out where the gray clouds are crowding together to turn the sky a dark blue. You feel things in a deep way, don't you? Belle says. I can't help it, Justin says. That's nothing to be ashamed of. Sometimes it's a lot to carry around. Why are you so sad, he asks. Everybody in this world has troubles, honey, she says. Not a person who don't. My granny always says that a person has to live until they die, Justin tells her. He doesn't add that ever since he can remember, he's been trying to figure out what that means. Sometimes he thinks his granny means that the living is harder than the dying. But other times he thinks she means we have to live as much as we can before we die. He tries to not think about dying, though. Well, I agree with her, Belle says. Life shouldn't be feared any more than dying. I've never been afraid of either one myself. But when my time comes, I sure will miss all of it. All of what, Justin says. Belle swept one hand out in front of her, indicating the trees, the sky, everything. The clouds have moved on and the world is brightly lit once again. As long as Justin can remember, people have been talking to him like this. There's something about him that makes people treat him like he's an old man. Maybe that's why all the kids at school hate him, because all the old people like him. I wasted a whole lot of years being mad, Elle says. Don't you do that, all right? I won't, Justin says. Then, Elle leans her head on the back of the rocker and closes her eyes. Justin watches her enjoying the sunshine. He wishes that she and his granny could have known each other. He thinks they'd be real good friends. He thinks they'd have a fine time together. So I really like that little section. I, I love I love when really young people and older people are together. And that's something that, you know, I was often, I was very often around older people. You know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, it was nothing for me to be around people in the 70s. I would be right in the middle of them. And I think that had such a huge impact on me as a writer. And I sort of grieve that children aren't, aren't around their elders as much anymore. I think we're too age-segregated. So I wanted to put lots of scenes like that in the book. How do you think that that impacted your writing? Well, I think that they were always telling stories, you know. They, they tended to to be talking and not just watching TV or, or not being quiet. They were always telling something and they were always exaggerating. They, you know, they knew how to tell a good story. And also just, they taught me so much, you know, mm-hmm. I think they taught me how to work in the garden and how to plant a garden and how to take care of animals and how, to, how important it was to be good to things that were smaller than you like an animal, you know, like a dog, Mm -hmm. or how to appreciate, how to know the names of things like trees and particular bird songs, how to match those up. I just had a a knowledge that has been really important to me as a writer. Mm. I I just wouldn't trade that experience for anything growing up around older people. I, I think that in Appalachia, we do have more of that than most people. I think we're really lucky in that respect. And some of that comes from, you know, um, a lot of people in eastern Kentucky or southwest Virginia or, you know, the region, we we do tend to grow up closer to our people. And so that, that does mean that we have more age integration than a lot of people do. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because so I read an excerpt um, about that describes sort of the flood scene and, and it was just so vivid and so um terrifying um and um i i grew up in the part of west virginia that flooded real bad in 2016 and was there kind of as the flood mm-hmm. hit and in the days afterwards helping clean up and and then and then the part you just read was just such a there's such a sense of place that's really far from the mountains it's like the way the yes. the way the sky is the way the sun hits there it 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 sounds like Florida. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you, how did you research or explore these kinds of different spaces? Did you spend time around mm-hmm. an intense flood? Did you spend time in Florida writing this book? Or 
is at this point in since you've written so many books and you've been writing fiction for so long um i'm just curious how you how you get in the place well i think you know as an eastern kentucky and i've i've been really familiar with floods my whole life um when i was about six or seven i think um we had to leave our home because of a rapidly advancing flood and we had to leave in rowboat and i i don't remember this i i think i remember more of the retelling of it but um i do remember the aftermath of that feeling like a family that didn't have much to begin with and and losing a lot of it in the flood you know we lived in this little trailer between the railroad tracks and the laurel river and we were just sort of hemmed in there and that had a big impact on my family. You know, my family had to rebuild from that. So I always wanted to write about a flood in some way. And then um, this devastating flood hit Kentucky and Tennessee in 2010. And I heard a preacher blame that on, on gay people. You know, he was saying that we were giving gay people too many rights, and that's why God was punishing us with this, you know, with this flood that killed 35 people. And that sort of planted the seeds for me using the flood in this novel, you know, as sort of um, this Old Testament idea of God, you know, and this wrath that, that he's assigned. And, you know, every time some tragedy happens, you know, like Hurricane Katrina or whatever, Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or one of them will blame it on, you know, some liberal action of some mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it made perfect sense. The other thing is... A flood like that is just such a um, cinematic thing that it's a great thing to have in a novel because you always want to, you know, in a novel you want to create a cinematic world that your readers can see and there's lots of smells and lots of sensory stuff, you know. And I did go to Key West. Um, when I when I was writing this novel, I knew that the main character was going to kidnap his child and and run off somewhere, um, but I didn't know where. And, but when I went to Key West for a literary event, as soon as I got there, I thought, I have to write about this place. It's so vivid, and it is the complete opposite of where I grew up, you know, because it's so defined by the ocean and the subtropics in the way that where I was from, you know, was defined by rivers and mountains. And so it's just so different that I thought it would be great to have my characters be in a really exotic landscape for them. And so, of course, you know, even though it's most of the book is mostly set in Key West, it's always from the point of view of these people um, that I know, that I know really well. You know, I grew up really near the Kentucky-Tennessee border. And, um, and I said that these characters are from Tennessee mainly because I wanted it to be, um, on that section of the Cumberland River that floods so badly. That's where they're from. Um, but I just love creating a sense of place. You know, I love I love writing about the place I'm from, and I love taking my characters who are from that place and putting them in new situations and seeing it from their points of view. So you wrote an essay about this book called Looking in the Mirror, um, and, and in that essay you sort of talk about where this book came from personally in your life, um, mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd love if you wanted to talk about any of that, sort of um, your personal experiences with with mm-hmm. being a parent, with um, queerness, with religion, that and, and how that's influenced this book. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is my sixth novel. And with each novel, you sort of feel like you're <clears throat> putting all of your experiences in there, like everything you know. This one is was really my full life experience because the things you mentioned are the three really defining things for me. I get well, the four defining things for me are one being father, two being rural slash working class, three um, being gay, four. Um, I lost my train of thought. Shoot. Um, oh, for being raised evangelical. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and trying to 
rectify that, you know, trying to get rid of the evangelical parts of it that were hard for me and damaging, but also embracing the parts of it that were great, that I, uh, you know, the love I felt in that community. And so I'm doing all those things in this book. Um, and I'm looking at that, the complexity of being evangelical. Uh, you know, for instance, um, my parents go to a Pentecostal church, a holiness church, and very conservative. But they're also very accepting of me. And so I wanted to honor people like them who, you know, they live their own truth and, and they believe their own way, but they're also not condemning who I am and the way I believe. And I just wish that more Americans could be that way where they're, you know, they're living the way they want to and they're doing their own thing, believing in whatever they believe in, but also allowing people to be who they want to be. I just think we'd all be a whole lot happier if we'd let each other be who we are, you know? Yeah. And so I don't necessarily, <clears throat> I, I don't agree with a lot of my family's religious and political beliefs, but I respect their beliefs as long as they are not holding other people under their thumbs or, you know, judging other people. Um, and so that's one thing the book's about is looking at all the facets of that and how if we'd all just love each other, we'd all be a lot happier. And I mean, it's so simple that it sounds kind of precious, you know, but it really is true. Um, of course, we can't always do that. And so that's why you have a novel about it, because a novel has to be full of trouble and strife and tension. Um so that's the, the richness of the book, I think, is exploring some of the um, the differences in acceptance, the different levels of that. Um, so, yeah, I was pouring everything that I knew, you know, sort of, it's not an autobiographical book. I mean, none of this happened to me. But I'm using really essential truths in that I'm, I'm coming at it from the point of view of a rural gay person a working-class person, uh, somebody who was raised evangelical, and just trying to find all the complexities in that and not making caricatures of anybody. You know, that's why it took me almost 10 years to write it, because that's, that's a challenge. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, so just kind of what you were saying about um, about sort of you kind of hinted at the ways that um, maybe folks nationally think about rural people and rural working class people, especially in the South. And the and then you also mentioned really wanting to complexify rural spaces in your writing a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also curious if you feel like some of that around the description you just gave sort of of how you you know, love and care for your family and disagree with them and on some things and and they do the same with you, but that there's still this way of being in each other's lives and seeing each other as mm-hmm. whole complex people that um, to me feels like something that in some ways being at least in the mountains in a rural place, you you kind of almost have to do that, right? Like, yes. or else you're really isolated. And so I, I wonder if that's something that you think is true or and how that maybe relates to some of these national misconceptions of rural places mm-hmm. where we get really flattened. Well, that's the thing. I mean, is that the thing that troubles me about the way we're represented in the media is that it's always simplification. Always. We're always, uh, so is a generalization. You know, rural people will be pointed to as being racist, misogynist, and homophobic, and xenophobic. And of course, those things happen, but that doesn't mean that every rural person is like that. And that's always the implication. Um, I think it's. I think one reason that nationally people can't understand it is because it's really complicated, and you have to really live in the culture to understand it. So while let's say the culture as a whole might be homophobic, you know, it might have this uh, overall feeling of homophobia 
but if you sit down and talk to people one-on-one, a whole lot of people in the mountains, they love a queer person. You know, they, they, they know somebody who is just different from the rest of the family, and they accept it. They may not have the language to talk about it in a real academic way, the way most people on Twitter now can, or, you know, sort of have therapy speak about it, but they have that love. And that's what I love about mountain people is there is a sort of openness there individually, one-on-one, that may not occur in the whole culture. Uh, I'm not sure the whole nation can ever understand that unless they're immersed in the culture. You know what I mean, don't you? I do. I do, yeah. It's so hard to articulate, though. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it and, is, and, think, and, know, and people don't get, get it. It's, it's so different from how it functions other places where people think that if if you're able to be out and, and queer and celebratory and talk about it really loudly in every moment of your life all the time, then that's like evidence that you live in a place that's open and welcoming. And it's like, it looks so different here, which doesn't mean that people yep. aren't out and thriving and happy in ways in their lives as mm-hmm. queer people here, you know? I, I totally know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in you know most in the nineteen eighties, and and looking back, there were there were quite a lot of gay people in our community who were just you know they were accepted, and every once in a while somebody might say something a little derisive, or you know they might attach a, a negative word, but overall that person was embraced. Well, for a whole lot of people, that would not be acceptable, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 that that does get complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, however, looking back and and seeing how little representation there was in like national media and things like that, I think people were pretty far advanced on the way they dealt with all that during my childhood, um, and the way people were accepted. My first cousin, who's like a sister to me, her best friend was a gay man, and he was invited, always invited to all of our family functions, and you know, nobody had, nobody would ask him about his boyfriend. They didn't like acknowledge that. It wasn't because they wanted to negate him. It was just that they didn't really know how to talk about that with him, and so he was accepted, and everybody loved him, and he was part of our family. But it wasn't a topic of conversation, so. I think that's really interesting. You know, um, it's complex, and those—that's the reason that we need to tell rural queer stories, because I think when you can't boil it down to a little soundbite in, in the evening news, then you have to write a novel about it. You know, that's the function <laughs> of art. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT FM. Your Mountain Community Radio Station, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. In this second edition in our series celebrating LGBTQ History Month, we hear from Silas House, a nationally best-selling Kentucky author, who talks about his new novel, Southernmost, religion and queerness in the rural South, and writing process and inspiration. I guess I'm, I'm curious, so this is your sixth novel, but you've written... 12, 13 books? You've written a lot of books and plays. Um, and so I'm curious sort of about your, um, how, how you write, how you schedule it into your life and your days since you also teach and have other responsibilities. Um, and, and sort of what's like the physical space that you have found that works for you to write in? What do you do when you get stuck? Are you working on a lot of different projects at once or do you kind of focus in on one thing and then move on to the next? Well, when when it's possible, I'm always writing outside, if at all possible. Um, as, as long as the weather allows, I'm on my front porch. I have a table out there and that's my favorite place to write. I just love being out there in the you know, with uh, the light coming through the leaves and hearing birds and having a dog on either side of me there on the porch and 
you know, the most comfortable I can be is to have dogs with me and to be near a tree, to be breathing outside of air. And so the main thing for me as a rider is to be as comfortable as possible. When it's cold weather, I'm always at, at the kitchen table because I find real comfort in a kitchen. And I think a whole lot of country people, Appalachian people love being in a kitchen. You know, you may have a party. It almost never fails that people will congregate in the kitchen somehow. It always ends back up there. And so um, I'm either riding on the porch or at the kitchen table. Those are my comfortable places. Um, I get most of my, where I'm most productive is just in my head when I'm walking in the woods. I have a little walk that I do almost every day that you go out our back, down our backyard and then down this holler. And it, that opens up into this big pasture. You walk across that into these woods, and then suddenly I'm on this creek, and I can walk on that creek for about 30 minutes and back. And that's just the perfect length of walk for me to be thinking about my characters and think about the scene at hand that day, and then I can go back home and write that scene. However, like you said, I I'm, uh, I work full-time at Berea College. I teach three classes a year there. I also work at Spalding University in their MFA. I'm only on campus there 20 days a year, and I'm working with students a lot through the mail. Um, so it's like a juggling act. I just Every day I have to figure out, okay, I'm going to write during this time, and some days I don't get to write. You know, I just get to think about it. And that's just something you have, you know, every writer has to figure out for themselves how to do it's not like a nine-to-five job in that way where you're always keeping the same schedule. Um, and that just that works well for me. Um, I like to have a lot of different projects going on at the same time. I always picture it as like a stove where one burner's turned all the way up to high, one burner's turned real low, and one burner, something's just coming to boil. You know, so that I'm tending to things as I need to be to. And I'm just the kind of person that I need to have some kind of organized chaos. So that's how I work as a writer. And some people can't work that way at all. You just have to figure out what works for you. I like that stove description. <laughs> yeah. The best thing for me as a writer is walking, it's being in trees, it's being by bodies of water. But I recommend that writers do that. I listen to a lot of music. I surround myself by a lot of great art. You know, I read a lot. Sometimes the best way to get your writing done for the day is just to give yourself permission to sit and read for a couple of hours. You know, so you have to figure it all out. Since you just mentioned that you teach, I'm curious sort of what are some of the things that you always try and work with emerging writers or younger writers or your students with, um, with their writing Either like common things that you see um, come up that people consistently sort of need support on or mm-hmm. just sort of like, you know, the main points that you would hit with someone when you were just starting out or in a workshop or something like that. Well, the main thing that people need uh, to worry about is characterization, building characters that readers care about. If you think about your favorite books, it's almost always because you have an attachment to the characters. That's the number one thing. I really, really encourage writers to work a lot on sense of place. I think that when we're reading a book, we want to go to a place that we're either familiar with or somewhere really new. Um, You know, like as an Appalachian, lots of times I'll read a book because I want to see Appalachia in literature. And then sometimes I just want to travel to South America or somewhere in a novel and be there. Um, I think people worry way too much about plot. And people get freaked out about plot and they get all tied up in that. And so I encourage people to not worry as much about that, to worry more about their characters and their sense of place and being really sensory, trying to incorporate the five senses as much as possible. I do a lot of exercises like that where we're working with the senses, um, where we're thinking about the, what we 
know the best, like the place we know best, or the emotions we know best. You know, like if you have real experience with grief, then write about grief. If you've been shunned, write about that. You know, write about those really essential, fundamental things you know well. Um, and not, and don't worry so much about having lots of big explosions and things like that in a plot, because that's what people tend to worry about. And I also just encourage people, you know, to love language. And I think a lot of people come to the page because they love words, and they want to see words cared for on the page. I'm curious, do you have a moment when you kind of first knew that you were a writer or that you wanted to be? Well, when I, I don't know if I have a moment, but I know I was in seventh grade, and that's mostly because I had a great teacher. Her name was Sandra Stidham, and she was just a teacher that made us excited about literature. She made us care about poetry and novels in a time when that really wasn't being pushed in Kentucky curriculum. She brought her own books in, and she would loan us her books. And to see somebody excited about the written word, about books, that made me excited about it, so I really owe her great debt. Um, two books in particular she introduced me to that had such an impact on me were To Kill Mockingbirds and The Outsiders. And both of those books, just they made me want to be a writer, I think, in a way that nothing else ever had before. Um, and so since seventh grade, you know, I just really haven't looked back, and that's been my identity. Lots of times I'll be, uh, you know, doing interviews and especially with people who are not from the region will say, you must have been so ostracized, you know, as this little boy who loved to read and write. And I wasn't. I wasn't ostracized for that. It was more that people really identified me that way. And, you know, I think that's another thing people don't understand about small towns is that, and rural places, that everybody gets their identity. And if you're able to claim that identity, people are usually okay with with who you are, you know, in that way. And so all through school, I was just, you know, everybody knew that I was going to be a writer. Everybody fully expected me to publish a book. Um, and I think that's so important when you're able to have an identity. To me, I think that's one of the things that, you know, to be able to anchor yourself to an identity leads to so much contentment as a person. And I think the people I know who struggle the most are the ones who have not been able to latch on to an identity. So that was real important. I'm really thankful to the people I grew up with for giving me that. Hmm. And so you just sort of talked about it a little bit, but I'm wondering, um, in addition to those two books you mentioned, what are some of the books and or writers who, who've been the most inspiring to you and your writing or who've taught you the most or some books that really mean a lot to you? Well, there's so many, but I mean, I think the two people who really gave me permission to write about my own people were, I already mentioned Dorothy Allison and the other one's Lee Smith, who when I was in ninth grade, I read a book by her called Black Mountain Breakdown. And, you know, before that I had been reading Stephen King or, Gone with the Wind, or Scale Mockingbird, which is set in the real deep south, and I don't know, I never had seen my own people until I read Lee Smith, and suddenly I remember reading this scene where these, uh, this family's going to the breaks to go to the, to the pool at the breaks, and I'm like, I've been to the breaks. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to the pool at the breaks, I, and so I couldn't believe that somebody in the book was going to the break, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a scene where somebody was eating soup beans and cornbread. And just the way they were talking, and they were going to Pikeville to go shopping for school clothes. And <laughs> it just blew my mind that people, that Pikeville or Grundy or the break could be in a book. And so that just opened up a whole new world to me where I thought, well, I can write about, Leslie County and Laurel County, you know, where I grew up, I can write about going to Hazard or going to Knoxville. Mm. And um, so that just was huge for me. Um, 
And then I discovered people like Thomas Hardy, who writes, you know, about uh, British people. That it, it, it's very rural. It's very sense of place oriented. Or Willa Cather, who's writing about the rural experience. And um, the color purple by Alice Walker just was, it was mind-blowing to me, too, because it was looking at, one thing that it looks at is being able to believe in God in a way that is not like defined by, I don't know, some panel of a white man, you know? Mm-hmm. Suddenly it was God from the point of view of this black woman in rural Georgia who was thinking about God in a whole new way and seeing God in the color purple, you know, in a little purple flower out in the field. Um, that made me think about belief in a different way. And it made me think that maybe I could, you know, I had all these people sort of telling me that I couldn't belong to the church I was raised in as a gay person. And it made me start to think, well, maybe I can, maybe I can sort of expand my definition of God and think about God in a different way and, and have that. Um, so the Color Purple is a huge book for me. I, I, I think everybody should read that book, um, not only from a religious point of view, but also, you know, just from a, a gender point of view and sexuality and class and race. And it's just, God, it's such a masterpiece. Um, those are the main ones that come to mind for me. Lee Smith, Alice Walker, Dorothy Allison. River of Earth by James Steele was another book that allowed me to you know, think that I could write about my own people, that we were worth writing about. Um, and I read, like I said, I read a lot of Stephen King. He taught me a lot about writing, and uh, I still love a good horror novel, you know? <laughs> but those are the main ones that come to mind. It changes a lot, but those are the consistent ones every day. Mm. Yeah pretty much all southern there that you mentioned for the most part which which makes mm-hmm. sense with your description of the sense of place and and being able to recognize home and something that felt familiar mm-hmm. um yeah so you're about to head out on on a big tour for this book southernmost where all are you going oh lord i'm uh miami um washington dc new orleans atlanta Dallas, um, just all over, all over the Eastern Seaboard, pretty much. I'll be going to Scotland later on. I'll be going to London, England. Um, so sort of all over, and I just, you know, feel really lucky to, to be able to do that. And as many places as I'll, as I can, I'm having musicians come and join me at my readings. Um, so that makes it a lot of fun, and. Um, I just love getting to get out on the road and and talk to readers and answer their questions and talk about the book. I worked on this book for about eight or nine years, and so I feel like my characters have finally been released and they have some freedom, Mm -hmm. and I'm just happy that I can get out there on the road and and talk about them. Yeah. And and so what are you kind of most excited about for this book or, or, you know, what are you? What do you? What do you hope for the book now that it's out in the world? The main thing is I I want people to see rural people and maybe think about rural people in a way they haven't before. I mean, I think there's a you know a, a couple of gay characters in the book, um, and often people just don't think gay people live in rural places. They think that you know everybody leaves and goes to New York City or to California or whatever. Um, people will say all the time, you know, why would you choose to live there? I'm like, well, you know, why would I choose to leave? You know, it's, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's such a uh, condescending question. Um, and also, I want them to encounter rural people who are on different levels of acceptance and different levels of religiosity and um I just want them to think about the the place in a different way, in a more complex way. I mean, you know, I don't want to I don't want to harp on hillbilly elegy 
And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not the it. kind of writer. I'm not, <laughs> as a writer, I have never disparaged another writer in public. I think that's kind of tacky. You know, I, I don't want to be talking bad about people. But I think Hillbilly Elegy sort of transcends that in that it's such a cultural phenomenon. So I don't mean to be distasteful and talking badly about another writer. But the, the problem with that book is that, to me, it gives the same old representation. There's nothing surprising about the Appalachian people in that book. And not to say that those people don't exist, but the thing is, we have seen them over and over and over again. I think that's partly why it's so so successful, because people don't want to be challenged too much on what rural people are. They want to, you know, they want to see this comfortable notion of what they are, and they encounter that, and he'll be an elegy. And so to some degree, you know, I'm always trying to write the opposite of that, in that I want to write about people that, that you're not used to. And those are the people I know. You know, I do know some people like that, sure, because they exist in every culture. Um, but, but lots of different kinds of people live here. I think there are many Appalachians. There are many Appalachians, you know, and um, that's what I'm always excited about talking about. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else you kind of wanted to talk about or, or wanted to add or would want people to know about this book? Well, I always like talking about the music in the book. Um, it's real important to me that each of my characters sort of have their own defining soundtrack. And, and usually they'll have one artist that they really identify with, and that allows me to create that character. So, like, there's this little uh, boy in the book, Justin. He's from 8 to 10 years old in this book. And he just loves My Morning Jacket um, and Jim James. And he loves Tom Petty and George Harrison. He just has a real distinct taste in music that sort of defines who he is. Um, another character in the book is obsessed with Joni Mitchell. So there's a lot of Joni Mitchell music throughout. The lead character, Asher, has come to really identify with the music of Patty Griffin. Mm. There's something that's so full of longing in her music that he's a lot like that. Um, I was thinking of a lot of the musician Carla Gover, who's from Letcher County, uh, when I was writing this book. I love her voice. I love her spirit. Uh, some people would know her uh, as part of the group Zoe Speaks. But she also has some solo work that I love. I was thinking a lot about Daniel Martin Moore and Joan Shelley. I was listening to them a whole lot while I was writing this book. Um, Brandy Carlisle is a huge influence on this book. I was thinking of her a lot. Um, Sam Gleaves is somebody that, during the course of the writing of this book, has become well known. You know, and I'm so proud of him and the way he's complexifying notions of rural people. And country queers, um, and the music yeah. too from this place. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's redefining that. You know, he's he's paying homage to the heritage, and he's carrying that tradition forward. But he's also evolving it, and I love that. I mean, that's what true folk music does. It, it doesn't stay stuck. It, it it pays homage to those roots. And it acknowledges the forebears, you know, the, the Appalachians who came before, the Africans who came before in that music, but also takes it forward. So, yeah, there's a lot of music in the book, and um, there are two soundtracks up. If anybody has Spotify and they just look, they can just search for Silas House Books with my username, there's two soundtracks on there. One is called Southernmost, and one is called More Southernmost. <laughs> and there's about 60 songs on there they can listen to while they're, while they're reading the book. I was also just wanted to shout out for Brett Ratliff, too, who, um, you know, I was listening to a lot of Brett's banjo music, and I love the way Brett sings and plays the fiddle. And I just think he's such a great repository for the Appalachian sound. I just, when I think of contemporary Appalachian sound, 
Awesome, like a Brett Ratliff. So I hope people check him out too if they don't already know him. Yeah, yeah. He was just here at seed time just last weekend. He's a good one. He is, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I'll just ask you one more question that's kind of a big one as a as we wrap up here, which is sort of um it almost makes me laugh to ask it because it's so broad, but <laughs> um why do you think why do you think novels are important and maybe especially mm. in this in this current moment we're in in this world? Well, I think because we are living in a time we are sort of witnessing the death of nuance. And the very thing that a novel does is give nuance. A novel takes <clears throat> you know, one sentence or one theme and it spends three or four hundred pages looking at all the nuances of that. And I think new, never before in our history as a country has nuance been so important when there's so much simplification and there's so much generalization and so much erasure of people and decorum and conversation. The thing that just grieves me to death is this wave of anti-intellectualism that swept our country. And, you know, Art has to fight that. Literature has to fight that. Literature and the arts, that's the opposite of anti-intellectualism. So that's, you know, that's why those things are so important. Um, I think that our legislators have largely failed us. And and when when your representatives fail you, your artists will not. So turn to art in dark times. And it'll carry us through. I mean, maybe that's lofty and, I don't know, too hopeful of me. But I believe when you get right down to it, you know, words and music can win out over a lot of other things. So I I, I sort of cling to that in in dark days. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking to me and for writing this book. Um, I... I can already tell I'm going to love it and that, that the world needs more books like this. So thanks for, thanks for this one. Thank you. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough for, for everything that Appleshop and WMMT does and, and your, all of your great work that you're doing on your own. Um, yeah, people in my traveling so far, you know, I already, people will say to me all the time, you know, um, they'll say, you know, it's, it's awful what's happening in Kentucky and, you know, how, how are people surviving now that, now that there's no coal and all this. And, and I just give them this long list of all these things I'm excited about, all the things that people in the region are doing. You know, this food movement that we have and arts movement and, um, you know, all this transitional stuff that the people are doing. It. Our legislators may not be doing it. People are taking... We're taking a hold of the plow, and we're doing things in this region. So uh, I love being able to inform people about that while I'm out on the road. Yeah. But thank you so much. I love talking to you. Thanks for these questions. Thank you. Thank you. Consciousness is building to make this country proud. We'll fight for our freedom. I believe I feel it coming now. When the hate is written, this I know. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, the second in our month-long series celebrating LGBTQ History Month. We were joined by author and activist Silas House. Special thanks to Southwest Virginia-raised and East Kentucky-based musician Sam Gleaves, who graciously gave us permission to use his music in this episode. 
We heard The Golden Rule off of Sam's 2015 album, Ain't We Brothers. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.